Little Leaf Farms is not your average farm. There are bright, leafy greens growing as far as the eye can see. But they're not in soil. And on our first trip here, about an hour's drive from Boston, the weather was in the 30s. So the idea is that, you know, you're eating fresh lettuce here in the middle of wintertime in New England, and that just doesn't happen. And I think right now we're at the beginning of using technology to grow food locally. Coming up, the founder of Little Leaf Farms and other entrepreneurs on innovations in food production. They're motivated by big goals, being more sustainable and feeding more people. The UN projects the world's population will reach nearly 10 billion by 2050. This is The World to Come, a podcast brought to you by Bank of America, exploring life and the future, starting with the visionaries of today, featuring clients and partners affiliated with Bank of America. I'm Tess Vigland, and in this second episode, the power to recreate food. You know, going forward, you need 70% more food production towards 2050. Bank of America global research analyst Felix Tran is based in London. He looks at global megatrends, including food production. Let's talk about why you went into uh, a career of studying and analyzing food. How did that start for you? Sure. So, um, you know, when I joined Bank of America about five years ago, it's actually um, I was tasked with, uh, with my colleagues there exploring this idea of the food security challenge. Fascinating trends on sort of newer moonshot ideas, whether that's vertical farming, um, lab-grown meats. Um, but for me, it's, you know, the personal angle, I guess, what is delivered on your plate and how through various supply chains that actually gets to you and how sustainable it is. And then just thinking more long-term. Felix says one way to boost the production of produce is to expand the use of hydroponics. That's where you grow plants in a nutrient solution instead of soil. He thinks hydroponic greenhouses could change what it means to eat local. With greenhouses, right, going forwards, I think you can be very nimble with where you place them. Because obviously, when we think of greenhouses, we think of natural sunlight. But we have seen sort of greenhouses being developed where are more sort of um, using artificial light powered by renewable energy from solar panels on the rooftops to make the process, again, more environmentally friendly. So I think, you know, the evolution, as it were, of the greenhouse combined with hydroponics and clean energy is going to be a very interesting development in this area. Several companies are already testing this concept. That's why our producer was able to taste freshly picked baby greens in Massachusetts, despite freezing rain outside. I want you to taste the lettuce. Oh, my gosh. You taste that crunch? Yeah. That, that sweet flavor? The growers... Paul Salou is the founder of Little Leaf Farms. In New England, we import over 90% of the food that we eat, so it's grown elsewhere. So I've always been a big proponent of growing local I looked at the lettuce category and I said, wow, I mean, it's so concentrated out in the West Coast between Salinas, California, and Yuma, Arizona, where according to the USDA, over 95% of the lettuce is grown. I felt there was an opportunity to, to focus in on lettuce and, and, and leafy greens. And that's when I started Little Leaf Farms uh, in 2015. And we've been off to the races ever since. You know, I am always fascinated by origin stories. So I would love it if you would take us back to a time before Little Leaf Farms. You know, where where did your dream begin? How I'm going to be really cheesy here, but uh, how, how was the seed planted, so to speak? 
So I grew up associated with my family's farming business located in Connecticut. So that's where I guess you could say the farming and the growing bug sort of was was planted. The seed was planted, so to speak. And I had built a, another greenhouse business called Backyard Farms, which we built into a 42-acre greenhouse complex in Madison, Maine, where we introduced a locally grown vine-ripened tomato into the New England marketplace. And uh, I, I saw the enormous uh, reception and the passion that all the New England consumers had about supporting a higher quality, locally grown product. After that, Paul's goal was to set up the world's most technologically advanced greenhouse and try his hand at farming lettuce year-round in New England. So what you're looking at is our phase one greenhouse, which is one hectare or 2.5 acres. And then that's contiguous to our phase two greenhouse, which is another one hectare, 2.5 acres. The operation relies on a system of intelligent automation that keeps the temperature and light optimal all the time. The plants themselves grow out of a series of 19-foot-long gutters. We grow in a substrate called stone wool, which is made from the basalt rock. So it's a mineral-based substrate. But you fundamentally feed the plants uh, through a process called fertigation, where you're taking water-soluble nutrients, mixing it with the recycled rainwater that we capture off of our roof. And then we then supply that to the plants based on uh, the needs of the plant. This greenhouse is so densely populated with lettuce, you can hardly see the separation between plants, or even the opposite end of the greenhouse. On a per square foot basis, we're growing about 25 times the amount of lettuce than is being grown in that square foot in California. We're at the beginning of more and more controlled environment systems that are going to be growing food at the doorstep of where the people live. Can you describe for me why a company like yours, why a product like yours is important to this whole notion of community and keeping the community healthy? So what happens if something happens in Salinas or Yuma, right? With that level of concentration of food, there's risk associated with that. So just from that standpoint, distributing where the food is grown, I think you're, you're going to be a more resilient society and certainly a more resilient community. And then also part of that is we're hiring people. We are hiring local people. These are year-round jobs with benefits. So you know, you're investing back in the community by, by growing it local. Look into the future. Uh, and what would you hope people would be saying about Little Leaf 10 years down the line, maybe even 50 years down the line? What do you imagine them saying? That we were part of this uh, next generation reinvention of our food system. Using state-of-the-art sustainable technology, growing food close to the population centers, building more resilient communities, producing the highest quality, most nutritious leafy greens, uh, a brand that people trust. They know that when they eat our product, they're eating something that was sustainably grown in an ethical manner uh, and basically is of the highest quality. And being part of this, you know, diversification of our food system. Okay. Let's go from our salad course to the main course, protein. We're going to the other side of the country, to a big warehouse in the Mission District of San Francisco. This is the headquarters of a startup called Just Inc. One of the things they do here is study plants from all over the world 
to see how they can be transformed into all kinds of foods. They've built up an archive of plant specimens. We are headed to the Just Plant Library, which represents a culmination of years of work and thousands and thousands of miles of scouring the world for plants that can be used in our research. This is Udi Lazami, the plant sourcing director at Just. He joined the team after a career advocating for environmental and sustainable agriculture policy. Now Udi travels the globe to forage for plants and establish relationships with farmers. Most of these things come from, I mean, you know, some of them I had to literally put in a backpack. And so, you know, every one of these has a different story and it's, it's really fun. And once he brings these plants back to the Just offices, I wanted to know, what are they looking for? We take a wide diversity of plants uh, within thousands of species, and we are looking at them at a molecular level to uh, discover potential functional applications. Could a plant protein of some sort um, emulsify oils or uh, foam up in a creamy kind of application or gel in a pan like an egg? Figuring out how to create an egg substitute was a long-time project for Just. And they hit on a surprising answer. Mung beans. That's M-U-N-G. Mung beans are round and green and about the size of a lentil. They're a good source of protein and really popular in Asia. What we love about it is that to grow mung beans and to use it in an egg type of application requires a tiny fraction of the uh, water and greenhouse gas emissions that egg production requires. Um, so that's a huge benefit. That's something I love about it. But can little green beans satisfy your taste buds when you're craving eggs? That's a question that Chris Jones, a chef at Just, takes very seriously. My favorite food is, is actually egg. Um, and that's why it's so important to me of a mission that we're doing it. Eggs are one of the cheapest sources of protein in the world, and global demand skyrocketed over the past few decades. Chris understands how important eggs are as a food source, especially as the population increases. I, I was fortunate enough to work in some of the best restaurants in the world, so I got to eat some of the best food. You know, coming from kitchens, you don't have a lot of money. Eggs are very, very affordable. Um, so I can get a dozen eggs, that's great protein. How do we do that? without, you know, all the extra effort that goes into doing that. This really is future. After high school, Chris studied under chefs who were cooking in the classic French style. He went on to work in an award-winning molecular gastronomy restaurant in Chicago and even competed on Top Chef. Then he decided he wanted to do more than prepare delicious food. He wanted to innovate delicious food and help make our food system more sustainable. I'm a little bit of a crusader, so it's not about the business or the money for me. The company recently put a product on the market called Just Egg. Another one of the company's chefs, Josh Hyman, offered to scramble some up in the company kitchen for our producer, Lauren Silverman. Josh had a small bowl of Udi's mung beans on display next to his frying pan. For your viewing pleasure. It's all about presentation, right? He also had a small bottle with a yellow liquid, similar to the color of real eggs after you whisk them. Luckily for us, the actual mung bean protein, once you mill them and hull them, actually ranges from a darker yellow to a paler yellow. So I'm just going to heat the pan up, going to add my fat. Get some butter in there. Is this how you make eggs at home? Absolutely. What's in the pan looks like scrambled eggs, but they don't smell like eggs. You know that smell of sulfur? This has been a challenge for Just. They haven't been able to recreate it. 
which depending on how small and ventilated your kitchen is, uh, is a good thing or a bad thing. So it looks done, so I'm gonna kill the heat. And we are gonna serve this now for you to give it a try. He seasoned it with a little salt and pepper. Hmm. It's good, it's chewier than eggs. It has the same sort of texture overall. It's strangely similar to the flavor of eggs. And that's the intention. Now that it's figured out eggs, the company's moonshot is meat. They're using the cells of animals to grow meat. At Just, they're working on making chicken nuggets. Here's how it works. A scientist harvests cells from a chicken feather. Then those cells go into a bioreactor, which is a kind of high-tech mixing vessel, along with nutrients to feed the bird cells. Over the next few weeks, the cells multiply and grow. And the result is something that looks like ground-up chicken meat. Then it's formed into a nugget. We've got the pot of oil going. This is just canola. Um, we're heat it up to 350. And then we're just going to deep fry it one more time, get it GBD or golden brown delicious, and have you give it a try. Lauren was our taste tester again. Let me give it a try. It's very good. It's very good. It tastes like chicken. <laughs> Those GBD chicken nuggets received rave reviews from Lauren, which didn't surprise Chris. He's already faced his toughest critic. My daughter, she's eight. She was in a unicorn onesie, a rainbow unicorn onesie with a little horn. She was sagating around. And I go, hey, Savannah, you want to try nugget? And she goes, sure, Dad. She loves, you know, kids are chicken, chicken nugget connoisseurs. And I, I gave her one and she ate it and she just wheeled off. And I'm like, what'd you think? And all she did was, she just gave me a thumbs up and just wheeled away. And I'm like, we're on the right path. If an eight-year-old thinks this is delicious, that's, that's a pretty good sign. So eggless eggs, laboratory-grown meat, and hydroponic lettuce. With all this in mind, I wanted to turn back to Bank of America global research analyst Felix Tran. What are other ways we might recreate food going forward? I think increasingly a lot of our food will be coming from localized production that we've talked about. Um, basically incrementally less from rural farms and more from, you know, mixture of domestic lab-grown produced meat through to these green warehouses we've seen. And I also foresee the food coming increasingly from different sources um, of protein, right? Potentially edible insects is sort of a hidden source of protein, as it were. Again, have to educate the consumer, you know, pushing back. You know, they probably don't want to eat insects. Right, of course. But then again, you have the populations in Southeast Asia that eat them every day. So you're right, it's changing tastes. Exactly, exactly. So it's probably educating the Western consumer there. I think the vast majority of the population will always remain very much seeing food as another part of enjoying. Um, there's a socializing aspect, don't forget, you know, there will still be restaurants in our future world where we still want to go out with our friends, families um, at a restaurant and have a nice steak with a glass of wine. A few decades from now, the food on our plates might not look a whole lot different or even taste all that different. But as we've been hearing, more and more we'll need to leverage technology and innovation to answer the unprecedented challenges facing our food ecosystem and to feed the world's growing population sustainably. Entrepreneurship in the food industry. 
the power to make major contributions to the health and well-being of generations to come. Here's to the menu of the future. What would you like the power to do? On the next episode of The World to Come, would you rather collect your water on a net in your backyard? The water's going to cling onto and then drip down from, kind of like a spider web. Or filter it out of the ocean. 98% of the water in the world's in the ocean. And, and so we've got to think through other ways in which we can get this water and deploy it to people that need it the most. That's next time on The World to Come. I'm Tess Vigland. B of A Merrill Lynch Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities, Inc., B of A.S., and or one or more of its non-U.S. affiliates. B of A.S. is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation. Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. This information discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as research or investment advice. Bank of America, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2019, Bank of America Corporation. 